As Henry Clay rose to speak at a farewell dinner in his honor at the Mansion Hotel in Washington, D.C. on March 7, 1829, one imagines that he was still trying to sort out in his mind how so much had gone wrong in so short a time. Four years prior, he had been taking up the office of Secretary of State on a path that he felt would ultimately lead him to the presidency when John Quincy Adams left office. Now, he was headed home to Kentucky while Mr. Adams was making ready to depart for Massachusetts, vacating the White House the day before his successor, Old Hickory himself, was inaugurated. Clay was not one for running from a fight, though, as the new president would soon find out. However, it wasn't just the election that had gone wrong. For a decade and a half, Clay had championed the possibility and the promise of the nations being born out of the revolutions that had broken out in Latin America. As he had said in 1816, quote, It would undoubtedly be good policy to take part with the patriots of South America. I consider the release of any part of America from the dominion of the old world as adding to the general security of the new. Now, though, Clay had to acknowledge that he felt that something had gone awry on the path of Latin American independence. He told the crowd of well-wishers gathered at his farewell dinner that, quote, it is remarkable that, at this epoch, at the head of eight of the nine independent governments established in both Americas, military officers have been placed or have placed themselves. The only saving grace of Jackson's election in comparison to affairs in Latin America was that, quote, his, i.e. Jackson's, election had not been brought about by military violence. The forms of the Constitution have yet remained inviolate. Clay's attempt at pivot in foreign policy to a focus on the Western Hemisphere had not only failed, but it was likely that Jackson and his administration would undo what progress had been made. And heaven knew where that would leave the United States or their fellow republics in the Americas. Hello and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. We're going to reset the clock with the next two episodes to focus in on the Adams administration's policy towards Latin America during Clay's tenure as Secretary of State, as Clay was the chief proponent and architect of the policy. However, before we discuss events from the American perspective, some background is needed as to what was going on in Latin America before Adams took his oath of office in 1825. And that is going to be the aim of this episode, so that next episode we can examine the administration's policy and Clay's role in that. And yes, I realize that it might seem odd to devote an entire episode of the Harrison podcast to the revolutions in Latin America, but as Harrison did serve as minister to Columbia towards the end of Adams's term, I feel that this background information will help in better understanding the administration's foreign policy as a whole and Harrison's role in that, as Columbia loomed large in the administration's thoughts regarding the region. Now, naturally, there's no way to comprehensively cover the Latin American Wars of Independence in one episode. It would take an extensive series of episodes to even begin to do it justice, and I'd like to finish up the Clay Biography series sometime before the end of the year. Thus, this will be a very high-level overview. For a more extensive treatment, I'd recommend Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, which, in its fifth series of episodes, covered this revolution with a focus on Simon Bolivar, who will also be popping up in this episode. I'll post a link to the first episode of that series in the show notes page on the blog, and I'll have some other sources in there as well that you can peruse at your leisure. Also, in this episode, I'm going to mention the term criollo at various points. That is spelled C-R-E-O-L-E. In English, this is pronounced Creole, but the word in Spanish is pronounced Criollo, and thus I will be going with the Spanish pronunciation in respect to the context. 
Plus, Criollo is more fun to say. Try it with me. Criollo. See? I told you. Anyway, before I start talking about my love of the words pomplamoose and shoes, let's get started. We all know how the rhyme goes. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, so on and so forth. After Columbus came Cortez and Pizarro and DeSoto, and before long, a good chunk of the Western Hemisphere technically fell under the authority of the Spanish crown. However, dissension against colonial policy came pretty early on. As noted by J.H. Eliot in his study of the Spanish and English empires in the Western Hemisphere, quote, In 1498, when Luis Roldan rebelled against the government of the Columbus brothers on Hispaniola, he rejected the name of colonos for himself and his fellow settlers of the island and demanded that they should be known as vecinos, or householders, with all the rights accruing to vecinos under Castilian law. A colon was, in the first instance, a laborer who worked land for which he paid rent, and Roldan would have none of this. The sense of autonomy would be a trend in the history of the Spanish colonies that would carry forward and culminate in the independence movements in the 19th century. As noted by Gabriel Paquette in his article entitled The Dissolution of the Spanish Atlantic Monarchy, Paquette critiqued traditional notions or portrayals of the Latin American wars of independence by historians as being, quote, a derivative and belated version of events in North America and Europe, and instead points out that, by attempting to lump together the various revolutions occurring in the world in the late 18th century and early 19th century into a convenient heading of the Age of Democratic Revolutions, it ignores numerous factors that distinguish the Latin American revolutions from other contemporary movements. As with Roldan's rebellion back in 1498, it wasn't necessarily that those in revolt in Latin America in the early 19th century were looking to do something new, but rather that, quote, those who sought America's independence from Spain wanted to recover a long-lost, pristine past when the government apparatus supposedly functioned properly and in the interest of the community it ruled. Paquette notes 1808 in the midst of the Napoleonic Wars as being a pivotal year for the future of Spanish America. Leading up to that year, quote, The second half of the 18th century was marked by the vigorous expansion, bureaucratic, commercial, demographic, and territorial, of Spain's transatlantic monarchy. Spain had benefited from its participation in the Seven Years' War, with not only having territory that had been taken during the war, such as the Philippines, restored to its control, but they also gained the Louisiana Territory from France. Even their loss of Florida to Great Britain in the aftermath of that war would be reversed two decades later when they retook it from the British in the American Revolution. Traditional accounts of the late Spanish colonial period often depict a, quote, Spanish transatlantic monarchy that slouched on to the 19th century stage in a rather dismal state, unsuited for anything greater than a minor part in the unfolding European geopolitical drama and on the verge of collapse. However, more recent scholarship has started to question this preconception. As historian Kathleen Duvall notes about the aftermath of the siege of Pensacola towards the end of the American Revolution, quote, The victory was proof that the Spanish Empire was on the rise again and that the Bourbon reforms enacted in North America after 1763 were working. Enlightened leaders, cutting-edge military tactics, careful Indian diplomacy, and an inclusive military force had been wildly successful. Even as late as 1800, the per capita GDP in Argentina was 102% and in Cuba a whopping 112% higher than that of the United States. Spanish trade with the U.S. increased 400% from 1778 to 1796. 
it seemed like Spain was poised for a bright future ahead as a colonial power. What happened then? As with France and Britain, the American Revolution would have unintended consequences and require a rethink of colonial policy for the Spanish. The military excursions it had undertaken would ultimately come with a hefty price tag, with some of the costs having been put on credit, and thus deferred for repayment on down the line. The Treasury of Madrid would increasingly come to rely on revenues from its American colonies from 1784 on, and would make reforms to its tax system and governance structure accordingly. Reforms that would come to be known as the Bourbon Reforms, and which would cause consternation amongst the ruling class of the colonies, who, after previously enjoying a, quote, mutual compact between the Spanish crown and the ruling class of their different provinces, which gave the provincial elite quote, limited access to quasi-governmental, crown-sponsored institutions, were now finding themselves being shoved aside by, quote, peninsular lawyers, accountants, and soldiers brought in from Spain to expedite the revolution in government, to ensure that the revenue of the colonies would benefit the treasury in Madrid rather than the provincial elite. Using Mexico as an example, taxpayers paid between 40 and 70 percent more during this period than their counterparts in Spain. To put it succinctly, the increase in trade with the U.S. previously mentioned occurred because the Spanish government was willing to allow the colonies to trade more directly with neutral nations, of which the U.S. was one, while at the same time sending officials from peninsular Spain to the colonies to ensure that all tax revenues from the trade were collected properly and sent back to Madrid. This interfered with the black market trade that had already been occurring with the U.S. and other nations, which circumvented the previous Spanish mercantilistic trade laws, and that, being black market, resulted in more profits for the Criollo merchants and elites engaged in the trade. Now, their profits were going to Madrid. This may have been reform for the Bourbons, but for the Criollos, it was an outrage. This, quote, elite frustration did not translate directly into unrest but the problems did not stop. The wars with first revolutionary France, then with Great Britain on the side of France, would further drain the treasury. Spain was eventually pressured by Napoleon to cede control of Louisiana back to France, and the French subsequent sale of that territory to the United States further exacerbated pressures that bordering Spanish provinces such as Florida and New Spain were feeling from the growing power of the U.S. The decimating defeat of the French and Spanish fleets at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 that ensured British dominance on the high seas consequently cut off that source of revenue on which the Spanish mainland depended, namely the revenues from the colonies in the Western Hemisphere. 1808, though, would be the year that the wheels would fall completely off of the vehicle of the Spanish monarchy. Under increasing political pressure, Spanish King Charles IV would advocate his throne in favor of his son, Ferdinand VII. French Emperor Napoleon, however, who was at the height of his power and control over the whole of Europe, would nullify this transition of power and instead pressure Ferdinand VII to advocate in favor of Napoleon's brother, Joseph Bonaparte. The overthrow of the Bourbon monarchy threw the Spanish colonial system into turmoil as Spanish governmental authorities and provincial citizens attempted to figure out what this meant for them personally and for the vast lands of the Western Hemisphere. One of the problems with talking about the independence movement in Latin America is that it didn't really happen, at least not as a coordinated, unified whole. 
Talking about the, quote, independence movement in Latin America implies that it was just one big movement, when in reality, it was a bunch of disparate people deciding, at times due to some shared motivations, to declare independence. A good analogy is that of a garden with different types of vegetables. The veggies may all get ready to harvest at around the same time, but it's not like the tomatoes coordinated with the cucumbers in the process or that they all had one big meeting to plan a timeline of events. Certain factors affected most or all of them simultaneously in the process, but they acted as independent agents in ripening. Likewise, the movements across Latin America were, quote, myriad divergent local responses, and, quote, the confluence of factors and social forces and the simultaneous, locally generated, uncoordinated movements with an infinite number of leaders. This wasn't the 13 colonies meeting in Independence Hall or representatives from all corners of France coming together and taking the tennis court oath. This complexity and the fact that there is no neat and tidy story to the revolutions in Latin America are, I believe, contributing factors to this period of history having been misunderstood and are dismissed by historians in the U.S. and Europe for so long. So, what happened in 1808 and immediately after? Well, in one word, confusion. Naturally, the French-declared King of Spain, now styling himself as José I, wanted the colonies to declare their loyalty to the crown, his crown, of course. Meanwhile, opposition forces in Spain organized into the Extraordinary and General Cortes of the Spanish Nation, the first national assembly in the nation's history to claim sovereignty. They, too, wanted the colonies to declare their loyalty to them, as they were acting as the government of the nation in place of Ferdinand until, depending on who you talk to, Ferdinand's return to the throne, or the Cortes was able to decide that they really didn't need a king after all. Whichever came first. Really, though, they were hoping to get some funds from the colonies, that breadbasket for Spain for oh so long, to fund their efforts to retake Spain from the French. However, if the colonies decided not to send any money, there really wasn't much they could do about it. Yeah, you can guess where this is going. Back in the Western Hemisphere, as news started filtering back about Ferdinand's abdication and Jose I taking the crown, juntas were organized to try to get some semblance of order in the absence of a governing authority. The revolutionary in the sense that these juntas, quote, assumed limitless power to exercise sovereignty. It should be noted that they also demonstrated, quote, a rejection of the invader an unprecedented demonstration of fidelity to the king, and an explosion of Spanish patriotism and solidarity with the Peninsular Patriots, articulated through the press, civic processions, and public ceremonies in which participants reaffirmed loyalty to the crown. The popular aim at this point was not independence from Spain, though there were some who had been thinking of independence and who started to see this as a golden opportunity and a vehicle through which they might be able to achieve their goal. I'm looking at you and your friends, Bolivar. The first Spanish colony to take the initial step towards autonomy would be Quito, in modern-day Ecuador, where Criollo elites took over the government from Spanish officials in 1809. This was not the first time that the people of Quito had rebelled against Spanish authority, as they had previously had an uprising of violent protests against Spanish reforms in 1765. But due to actions on the Spanish peninsula, they would soon be followed by others. The independent Spanish government was finally deeming the colonies worthy of representation in the government, but at an unequal level than that of metropolitan Spain. 
Adding to the tensions between the colonies and this new government was the fact that the government was ultimately based in Cadiz, a port town where prominent merchants were able to exert strong influence on government officials to seek a return to a closed mercantile system that would profit the Cadiz merchants at the expense of citizens in Latin America who had been enjoying more liberal trading that resulted in profits going into their pocketbooks. Both of these were unacceptable to elites in the colonies. And thus, the Council in Caracas, in what is now Venezuela, declared its independence in April 1810, voted the governing Captain General out of office, and rejected the authority of the Cadiz government, instead declaring themselves to be a junta. The war was not going well for the Cadiz government anyway, and the elites of the colonies sure weren't going to accept being ruled by the French, especially as they felt that Napoleon would also likely suppress the more liberal commerce that Spanish America had been enjoying, in order to benefit the coffers of his brother's government. Thus, within a year's time, Buenos Aires, Bogota, and Mexico would follow suit. However, these would not be independence movements per se. Their focus was on sovereignty, but they also claimed to be acting on behalf of the ousted King Ferdinand. Even when colonies started declaring actual independence, even from Ferdinand, they weren't always successful, such as the first Chilean independence movement in 1810 and the first Venezuelan Republic of 1811. In particular, the Venezuelan experiment reflects one of the key problems with a number of the early revolution movements. Namely, they were led by and large by white aristocrats and elites, the Criollos, with the future liberator Simón Bolívar included in that number. There was little reason for non-whites, those termed coloreds, as well as native peoples, to support independence as they felt that the Criollos, quote, for whom they labored, would grow more brutal without the Spanish authorities breathing down their necks. As these folks made up the majority of the population, without at least some support from those population sectors, the independence movements stood little chance of success. Movements with a non-elite focus were at work in other parts of Spanish America. A parish priest, Miguel Hidalgo, launched a rebellion of peasants beginning in September 1810 in what had previously been described by one writer as, quote, the most loyal and stable of all of Spain's American colonies, the colony of New Spain, which would ultimately become the modern-day nation of Mexico. Though Hidalgo's efforts were ultimately unsuccessful, and the priest himself would be executed, along with other key leaders of his revolt in 1811, the date that Hidalgo issued his initial proclamation against the Spanish government is today recognized as Mexican Independence Day. Hidalgo's banner would be taken up by José María Morelos, another priest in New Spain, and he would lead his troops in, quote, highly effective guerrilla operations into the Mexican heartland. But, like Hidalgo, he was captured and executed. Ultimately, Mexican independence would come under the leadership of a conservative leader, Agustin de Iturbe, quote, a Criollo officer in the Royalist Army who had been ruthless in repressing the earlier revolts, but who would be a part of a conspiracy in 1821 that proclaimed Mexico to be, quote, a self-governing Catholic and constitutional monarchy, with Iturbide being elevated by the Criollos as the first emperor of Mexico. Meanwhile, some areas exerted their authority by rejecting rebellion movements on the basis of where the impetus was originating. Though Buenos Aires launched its own revolution, though governed in name by Ferdinand, in May 1810, other parts of the vice royalty of the Rio de la Plata did not appreciate being told that autonomy governed out of Buenos Aires and led by that city's elites was going to be the name of the game. Thus, 
The rival city of Buenos Aires, on the other side of the Rio de la Plata, Montevideo, opposed their efforts, and that city was soon joined by others in the region of Upper Peru and modern-day Paraguay. Overall, the situation in Spanish America as the 18-teens progressed was highly complex, and it was made even more complicated by the return of Ferdinand to the Spanish throne in 1813. Many of these movements for autonomy have been claiming to be in the name of Ferdinand. So this should resolve all the issues, right? Well, Ferdinand made sure to do everything he could to turn nearly everyone in Spanish America against him. To be fair to the restored king, he was facing the prospect of ruling a bankrupt state, so he needed money fast. Where better to get that than that breadbasket which had provided so much to Spain in the past? Thus, Ferdinand sought a complete return to pre-1808 conditions, without realizing that many folks, including his supporters in the former colonies, had moved forward from that to an idea of some form of self-governance. For the next few years, there would be a back and forth as Spanish royalist forces would fight armies led by Simón Bolivar, José de San Martín, Antonio José de Sucre, Augusta de Iturbe, Bernardo O'Higgins, and a host of other pro-independence leaders that we don't have time to go into any depth about right now. By the time Clay became Secretary of State in 1825, though Spain would still be seeking to reclaim the lands of South and Central America, as the last remaining Spanish army in South America was defeated at the Battle of Ayacucho in December 1824, independence was essentially a foregone conclusion, and Clay would devote energies and his time at state to work to get Spain to recognize the independence of the Spanish-American republics. Before we draw this episode to a close, there is one more South American independence movement of which we must discuss, as this nation would play a large role in the Adams administration's efforts at diplomacy in Latin America. Unlike the rest of Central and South America, Brazil was a colony of Portugal that had been established in the 16th century. Though technically most of Brazil fell on the Spanish side of the longitudinal line established by the Treaty of Tordesillas of 1494, dividing the world between Spain and Portugal for colonization, something that would be a point of contention in Spanish-Portuguese relations for centuries. Ultimately, the Treaty of San Ildefonso of 1777 would resolve territorial disputes between the two nations in the Rio de la Plata and would affirm Portuguese sovereignty over the majority of what is modern-day Brazil. The Portuguese would focus their efforts in Brazil on the production of sugar, which was found to grow quite well there but sugar production would require a large labor force. Thus, the Portuguese also became a major player in the Atlantic slave trade, with an estimated 4.9 million people of African descent being transported to serve as enslaved labor in Brazil, importing more enslaved people than any other nation during the Atlantic slave trade era. After the sugar rush ended in the 17th century due to increased competition from other European colonies in the Caribbean, the focus of the economy in Brazil shifted to gold and diamonds, which proved profitable for Portugal until the second half of the 18th century, and the colony was still a key part of the Portuguese empire when the Napoleonic Wars upended the status quo in Portugal. The invasion of Portugal by French forces came a year before the ouster of the Spanish Bourbons in 1807, with the Portuguese royal family managing to avoid overthrow and imprisonment by escaping. Rather than fleeing to the territory of a friendly European power like Great Britain, the Portuguese court instead moved to its own territory. That's right, they packed up and, with the aid of the British, moved the entire court to Brazil, 
where they would remain for over a decade. During the Portuguese monarchy's time in Brazil, efforts would be made to boost commerce and industry in Brazil, including allowing other friendly nations to trade directly with Brazil. And in 1815, the colony would be risen to equal status with Portugal with the establishment of the United Kingdom of Portugal, Brazil, and the Algarves after the fall of Napoleon and the restoration of Portugal. The king, Joao VI, remained in Brazil even after Portugal's liberation and had his acclamation as king in Rio de Janeiro in 1818. Ultimately, though, the pressure from Portugal became too strong to resist, and Joao would agree to return the royal court to Portugal in 1821. The Portuguese Cortes, having secured the king's return, attempted to devolve Brazil back to the status of mere colony. As in Spain, the government of Portugal refused to allow Brazilian representation in the Cortes on an equal basis and even attempted to facilitate devolution of the central authority in Brazil by splitting off various provinces from the government in Rio de Janeiro. Leaders in Brazil could not get behind this, and they soon turned their focus to a figure present in Brazil around whom they could rally. Though the king had returned to Portugal, his son, Prince Pedro, had not. And by January 1822, he declared himself as regent of Brazil and replied to a petition from the Rio City Council. By May 1822, he accepted the title of Perpetual Defender of Brazil. And in September 1822, Pedro declared Brazil to be independent of Portugal, with Pedro beginning his official reign as emperor that December with his coronation. Naturally, the Portuguese government had something to say about that, but their military efforts to retake the former colony would last a much shorter amount of time than the efforts of Spain and its former colonies. By November 1823, the last Portuguese troops in Brazil surrendered. Thus, when Clay assumed his post at the State Department, he was dealing with an independent empire of Brazil along with various other Spanish-American states. Next time, we'll discuss how the administration approached all these new nations in an episode I'd like to call like a not-so-good neighbor, the tumultuous U.S.-Latin American relationship. As always, I'd like to thank the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook, both for his excellent work on the audio, as well as for providing his insight and expertise with the subject matter for this episode. As he comes from a background in Latin American history, I, and by extension, you, the audience, benefited from his much more in-depth knowledge base in this field of history than we would otherwise have had from my rudimentary prior knowledge. While part of the reason behind this podcast is for me to wade into subject areas in which I am more unfamiliar in order to learn about them and how they impacted Harrison in his time, I also want to ensure that I provide good information to you in order to help all of us ultimately walk away with a greater understanding. So thanks again to Andrew for helping us in this effort. If you, like me, need Andrew's able audio editing expertise, send him an email at andrew at foncook. That's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. For any questions or comments you may have for me, I can be reached at Harrison Podcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And my handle on both Facebook and Twitter is Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. For sources used in this episode, as well as to catch up on past episodes, check us out on whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com or on iTunes or Stitcher if you're not listening from there already. As always, thank you so much for participating in this journey. One year on, we've gone from the banks of the James River to the battlefield of Tippecanoe, from the diplomatic negotiations at Ghent to Harrison's Garden at Bogota. We've looked into Jacksonian finance 
and the circumstances of Harrison's death. We've journeyed across the North American continent to what's now the western U.S. and to the Rio de la Plata. We've covered much ground in a year, and I look forward to seeing where the next year takes us all together. Thanks for joining, and take care, dear friends. Until next time. <music>